Lord God, we are grateful for once again we come as your people on this your day seeking to know you and to follow you in our days. You've called your people in every age. And we ask, Lord, you would speak new truths into our hearts, that you would open our minds and our ears to what you would have for us as your people. And as we do so, Lord, as you do so, may we respond like we've never done before. And that we would find our full rest in you, Lord Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. I've been out of coaching now for 23 years, uh, and one of the fond memories that I had both in high school and as a coach was during the winter season, the baseball team that wasn't in winter athletics, we trained after school three days a week start to loosen, get their arms loose, and work out. Those kids who didn't have weight training, the kids that were going to Harvard worked out. The kids that were going to Salisbury State, you know, they took weight training during class. And so um, we, uh, we did these workouts. And I, Kip, I'll never forget when I was in high school, my junior year, meeting the wrestling team after we were done, and they were only halfway done with their practice. We came in. It was cold outside from outside and you know we ran the bases we did general conditioning and training and it was tough but this was a Monday and you know if you're a wrestler and it's Monday you had your last match on Saturday and when your match was done you ate and you probably ate a little bit on Sunday and so they came in on Monday after school to weigh in and several guys maybe didn't make weight and so this was a common practice in the 70s Good old Coach Lavazetta would have the wrestlers in. A few of them were over late. They'd just turn up the heat in the weight room, you know, to make them sweat. Uh, it's not a good practice. They shouldn't do it, and they don't do it anymore. But that was the 70s, and nobody got hurt, all right? And so it was an amazing thing just to sit there. And back then, you didn't have, when you took a water break, you went out in the hall and drank out of the water fountain. Can you imagine? But I, know, I remember walking through the hall, and all the wrestlers busting out of the weight room, and they're absolutely soaking wet. Nothing like our 189-pound our wrestler, who naturally was about 210, you know, covered in sweat, you know, all the way down. I, I just, I'll never forget it. Turning up the heat. My friends, today's text turns up the heat. I got up Sunday morning, and this is what I do. I, I take my time coming in on, sun, um, on Monday mornings because I work through the structure of the text a little bit before I get in. And as I read this text last Monday, I said, oh, Lord, really? You know, because this turns up the heat. We discovered last week that Jesus had come into the world to teach his disciples what life in his kingdom is like. And it's an upside-down kingdom. It's not natural to us. And as we follow him, our actions and lives turn our world upside down because it's radically different. If you remember, Jesus said there was a blessing. There was a deep satisfaction for those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. And woe to those who are rich, satisfied, laughing, and popular. Which would you rather be? And before you answer, your eternal destiny hinges on that answer. It's not an easy text to preach on, and it wasn't an easy text to hear. And this week, 
I'm sorry to say, it's not any easier. Jesus is turning up the heat, but in so doing, it's good for us as we walk in his kingdom and not the kingdom of this world. So I encourage you to open up with me to your Bibles in Luke chapter 6. We're going to go 27 to 36 today. Because by turning up the heat, it's getting a good workout. Because we're so quick when we get challenged by the Word of God to, to pull out, Oh, I'm a Christian. Here's my baptism certificate. Or I'm a Christian. Here's my confirmation certificate. I'm a Christian. You know, I, will, I responded to the call for decision in 1977, 87, 97, 2007, 2017, whenever the minister did and called me to do that. And I'm glad about all those things, and they're good, but that's not the issue. The things that we hang on to and think, yeah, I'm a Christian, maybe the kinds of things that the New Testament doesn't mention at all. They're not even there. But when John speaks of the assurance of knowing we have salvation, he doesn't take readers to the events in the past, talks about life in the present. That we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, but it doesn't remain alone. We're constantly growing and learning and serving and loving. And so we see Jesus initiating his kingdom principles in this. And oh, it's the picture of what the country of Jesus would look like. And it's all about relationships. And we learn two great truths in this passage. The first is that the new way of Jesus gives us a new ethic. And this new ethic, he explains. That's what he does here. The kingdom of Jesus and the way of Jesus gives us a new ethic. And then he gives an explanation about why we live within that new ethic. So here we have it. He's still on the plane from last week. He's got this massive crowd. But remember, he's speaking to his disciples, the 12 and the 100 or so that are within earshot. And so he starts off with that in verse 27. But I say to you who hear, those who you can hear me. He's talking to his disciples, right? And he starts off with this new ethic. But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. <laughs> that means, in other words, people who oppose you, people who are against you, people who have wronged you, as followers of Jesus, we are to love them. This is unnatural. It's unnatural to every single one of us. And so, we recognize what does Jesus mean by love them, love your enemies, bless those. What does that mean? Well, there's several words, as you know, for the Greek. There's the Greek word storge, which means family love, the love that you have. Uh, for mother, child, father, child, children within your family, the love around the Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter table, that's storge, that's not what, what Luke is using. There's eros, we know it's erotic, we get the word erotic, it's the passionate sexual love between a husband and wife in marriage, that's not what he's using. He could have used phileo, that's the love of friendship, the band of brothers, when you've gone through an experience with somebody that only you and they share together, that's the phileo love. That's not what he uses. What he does use here is agape. The love that is not motivated by the merit of the one who is loved. All those other loves come quite naturally. You know? 
you go through an experience with somebody, there's a bond. But here, agape is a deep, continuous, growing, and ever-renewing activity of the will towards the person that's being loved, with, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Agape love says, I will love this person because by God's grace, I choose to love this person. <laughs> and Jesus defines this agape in these first verses of verse 27 with unnatural deeds, words, prayers, and action. Let's look at these. First, you have unnatural deeds. Do good to those who hate you. First, imagine someone who hates your guts. We have them, right? We all do. Somebody just doesn't like you. You think, what did I do? You didn't do anything. They just do. Well, we're called to love them and do good to them. Instead of trying to think of something to get back at them, do something nice for them, for him or her. Well, that's unnatural, but to be sure, the follower of Jesus is to do this. Next, there's unnatural words. Bless those who curse you. This is absolutely unprecedented at the time of Jesus. You know, the Essenes, in fact, were encouraged to curse those who didn't follow their form of Judaism in the ancient world. They were called, curse them. This is incredible when someone pours a vile verbal abuse upon you and you respond with words of blessing. I got to confess to you. I had to run a giant eagle yesterday and I got everything I wanted to get and it was crowded and it was a kind of a hassle. But, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a good servant leader. So, you know, could you please run to the grocery store? Sure, I'll do that. So I'm walking out, and I get a text. Hey, if you haven't left yet, get ice cream. So with my bags, I walk back into the store, and I get some ice cream for today, Sunday lunch. And as I'm walking out, I'm thinking to myself, that's been a hassle. And I need some music therapy. And my granddaughter, just today earlier, had discovered my love of George Strait. And Idabel loves George Strait. You know? I'm here for a good time, says George. And so I'm like, I'm going to listen to that song. I haven't heard that song in 24 hours. I'm about due. So I am coming out with, in my left hand are my groceries. And in my right hand, I'm pulling up my playlist. Because the time I get to that car... I'm going to listen to this song. So I know I'm probably going a little slower than I should, but I look left and I look right, and I look left and I start to walk, and I notice there's a car with two, an older couple in it. And I'm starting to walk across the, the little street there at Giant Eagle, and then eh, they lay on the horn and they're right next to me. And I look over and they're scowling at me. And I gave them the Coach Sherman look, and the Holy Spirit came over me, just keep walking. Just keep walking. And I kept walking. That's a victory for this boy. All right? That really is. I will take it. I have the right of way. You know? I mean, yeah, I was probably going slower than they wanted me to, but I wasn't, you know, shuffling across. And I thought to myself as I got to my car, the next point that he's talking about, and I applied it at that point, but we're to bless somebody. I would have better just said, 
God bless you. Have a nice day. Bless those who hate you. Unnatural prayers. Pray for those who abuse you. It's impossible to truly pray for someone and hate them at the same time. So I got to my car. I had George Strait all pulled up. And I just paused for a second. Because there's a story there. There's a story there. That they're so rushed to get across the Giant Eagle parking lot that they're going to lay on the horn over a guy who's crossing the street. Not untimely. So I prayed for them. The command to pray, you can't hate people when you're praying for them. And so these commands to love our enemies is a call to unnatural deeds, words, and unnatural prayer, my friends. It's not going to come to you easy. So how can we do it? Hang with me. Jesus doesn't stop there. Then he calls his followers to an unnatural exercise of unnatural action. Verse 29 to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. You need to understand the cultural context that's going on here. In the ancient world, all the way through the medieval age, the pagan religions had teachings such as, and it was with less fear field at Trinity, we actually read some of these accounts. If you were a Viking, this was legal and expected, okay? If you slap me, I break your neck. You take my shirt, I chop off your hand. That was the way of the ancient world, all right? Outside of Judaism, all right? And many people feel the same way today. But the ancient Hebrew response was a vast improvement. In Latin, it's called the lex talionis. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. You see that in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And it, quite frankly, is a civilized principle and I think would restore some justice to our litigious society. But Jesus takes it even higher. Because this is about relationships. And it's about living in his kingdom. So Jesus goes far beyond in his call to turn the other cheek and to give to all who ask. Now is Jesus abrogating all exercise of personal defense? Is he abrogating the right uh, to your private property? Is he giving you the rights to give up all your private property? No. Rather, he's demanding a loving attitude that is not vengeful, but generous in giving. The slap on the cheek phrase is a verbal insult. It's a metaphor. All right? And therefore, it's an insult by someone who takes exception to your Christian faith. All right? In such a situation, the true follower of Jesus isn't to retaliate. Similarly, in reference to one's possessions... It's one's uh, spirit or attitude towards the person that's important. Scholar Leon Morris says it well. If Christians took this one absolutely literally, then there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another of prosperous idlers and thieves. It's not this that Jesus is seeking, but a readiness among his followers to give and to give and to give. 
It's a spirit of generosity. Love for possessions should never keep a Christian from giving. And no matter what they say about us, we respond with Jesus' amazing love. Love must be ready to give everything and, and to have it taken away if need be. And love must decide when to give and when to withhold. This is a supernatural, amazing love. And it's the ultimate expression of this is in verse 31. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's how you're to live. Significantly, all Old Testament and pre-Christian formulations were in the negative. Do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. There are a few exceptions. But Jesus turns it positively. Did you notice? Basically saying, this is how my kingdom followers treat others. Regardless of how they treat you. This is how you're to treat even your enemies. Can anyone live like this? Yeah, we can. We're going to get to this. And here's an example. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall collapsed, no one was more hated than the former communist dictator, Eric Honecker. Remember that name? Those of you who remember that? He had been stripped of all his offices. Even the Communist Party didn't want anything to do with him anymore. He was kicked out of his villa, and the new United German government refused him and his wife housing. They went from this opulent villa to homeless overnight. Then along came Pastor Uwe Holmer, the director of a Christian help center north of Berlin, and he was made aware of the Honecker's plight. Now, Pastor Homer felt it would have been wrong to give them housing in his center to the neediest that were around North Berlin, who really had more needs than they did. So he and his wife took uh, the former dictator of East Germany into his home. His wife, Margot Honecker, the dictator's wife, Margot Honecker, had, for 25 years, ran the education ministry for East Germany. The policies were dis greatly discriminatory against Christians that confessed the faith. The Holmers had 10 children. Eight of those children were denied higher education just because they were Christians. But they took them in. The Holmers were caring for their personal enemy the most hated man in all of Germany. It was unnatural, but so the way of Jesus. So they loved their enemies. They did good to them. They blessed them. They prayed for them. They turned the other cheek. And they gave their enemies their cloak, their house. And they did to the Hanukkahs what they wished the Hanukkahs would do to them. We can do it, friends, not through our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We're going to get to that here in a second. So Jesus doesn't stop there. He then explains the why. Why do we do this? Verse 32. First, he wants to make sure there's no credit for natural love, love that comes easy to us. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? 
Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. In other words, you know, the mafia, the gangs, they treat people who love them well. Big deal, right? They lend money, no problem. Big time. But you're going to pay it back, you know? Or you're going to be sleeping with the fishes. They expect to be paid. But the ethic of Jesus goes way beyond this. He discourages any self-congratulation or patting yourself on the back. We love people who love us. Big deal. Hitler did that. There's simply no credit that Jesus gives for natural love. There is, however, eternal credit for the new love of Jesus expressed to those. But he says, verse 35, Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. See, he gives two emphases for living this way that he promises. First, we will receive, our reward will be great. Literally, more than you can imagine. Much. And Jesus meant what he said. All right? Are we mercenary or selfish if we love our enemies with an eye to a great reward? No. C.S. Lewis once pointed out that a man is mercenary who would marry for money, but if he marries for love, he's not. Why? Because marriage is the proper reward of love. Similarly, love for God and others has a proper reward, which is God himself. We come to God to get God. And our reward with God forever will be much in Jesus Christ. And secondly, Jesus adds, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. To become sons of the Most High is the Hebrew way of saying we will be like the Most High, like God himself. Therefore, to love one's enemies is to be like Christ and like the Father. When the Homer family took Eric, Eric and Margot Homer into their home, they were like Christ. When we do good to our enemies, we are like Christ. When we bless those who curse us, we are like Christ. When we pray for those who abuse us, we are like Christ. And that likeness is our reward. So the great question is, how in the world can any of us live like this? Well, in our own strength, it's impossible. No one can love his enemy by a sheer act of the will. Not by striving to be better. Have you ever walked out of here, okay, Lord, I'm just going to do better. Stop. That's not the point. It never is the point. 2 Peter 1.4 says, But pray God, through new birth in Christ, we become partakers of his divine nature. This does not mean that we become God, but that his divine nature is at work within us. Christ's love that reached out to Judas is at work in each and every one of us. Can you imagine? 
His love for our neighbors where we were, live, work, and play is ours. My thoughts, my words, every aspect of my life centered on Christ can be, the Holy Spirit can use that. David Helm shares a story that happened at a missionary that was from College Church Wheaton. This uh, missionary had had an extremely long, tiring stint of service, so she came back with her husband and family, and she'd been looking forward to this time with great anticipation. She came back home to Chicago for the first time in her married life. She lived in a new, large, townhome-styled apartment in Chicago with a beautiful backyard patio. And she was artistic, and, and she, got, she started to work on her patio on her furlough. And, and it made that the focus of her decorations. But then a few months later, some neighbors moved in. And the best word she could describe them was they were coarse. There was loud music all day, all night. They never went to sleep. There was a constant flow of obscenities coming from the house all the time. They would urinate in the front yard, out in public didn't care. They totally disrupted her peace and she could see nothing good in them. So she asked the Lord to help her to be more loving. But every step she made, she has faced more rejection. And the crisis came when she returned home one day to discover that the neighbor's children had jumped over the fence and painted spray paint all over her patio and the inside of her fence. She was distraught, furious. She tried to pray but found herself crying out, I can't love them, Lord. I hate them. Knowing she had to deal with that and the sin in her heart, she began to converse with the Lord in her inner being. And a scripture came to her mind. And above all, these Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Colossians 3.1. So she started to ask the Lord, Lord, what does it mean for me to put on love with these people? The only way she could picture it was like putting on a coat. So she began to do so. She chose to wrap herself in the love of a God. And as a result, she began to experience a deeper life of Christ within her. So she made a list of what she would do if she really loved her neighbors and just started to check things off one at a time. This is what love looks like if I'm going to love them. So she baked them cookies, offered to babysit her children for free, began to invite the mother over for coffee. And the most beautiful thing happened. She began to know and understand them she began to see that they were under tremendous pressure. The reason they didn't sleep because they were all doing shift work. And there were several families living in this apartment. And they were under tremendous pressure, and she began to love her enemies and do good to them. So the day came when they moved, and she wept. An unnatural, amazing love had captured her heart for them. And they knew it, because they now knew the love of Jesus through her. So therefore, my friends, 
if we consider ourselves Christians, this love is our call. We're to love our enemies, truly love them. So a few questions for each and every one of us to examine ourselves as the heat is turned up. Are there some whom you hate? And do you, through some perverse twistedness, imagine that your hate is justified? If so, you're in trouble because Jesus isn't ruling your life. Are you doing good to those who hate you? If Christ is ruling your heart, it will be good. Are you blessing those who curse you? If not, Jesus is not on the throne of your heart. Are you praying for those who mistreat you? If so, you're like Jesus. It is impossible, and it is unnatural, for its amazing supernatural love of God. Only if you realize that you were an enemy of God, and though God could have punished you and should have punished you, he sent Jesus Christ to take your punishment upon the cross for you. That, and only that, is our hope, ladies and gentlemen. And that gives you a radically new self-image and changes your attitude towards others. Only that will do that, is the love of God in Jesus upon the cross. That's where we run. We don't strive to do better. You're never going to do this. It's taken me... 34 years just to get to the place where I didn't hammer the person's hood. That was a victory. I told you. No, my friends. This is our only hope. And it's the world's only hope. And that's our message to the world. Paul says, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's been tough in Jesus' uh, wrestling room this morning. But my friends, it's so worth it if we will walk in the reality of the amazing love of the cross. Let's love this way. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cross, which in you reminds us that we are so loved. And because of that love, we can love our enemies, bless those who hate us, bless those who curse us, and pray for those who abuse us. And when some people hurl insults at us, we can just not worry about it because they did so to you. Why would we expect any different? When people take advantage of our generosity, why would we think any different? But it's because of your love for us we can walk in the reality of your sovereignty. And because of your sovereignty, we can trust that no matter the temperature in the room, your amazing love can shine to us and through us as we seek to follow you together. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.